Hi, this is Ann Robertson, the pastor of the United Methodist Church of Westford in Westford, Massachusetts. This is the sermon from yesterday, from March 18th, um, at our regular Sunday morning service. It's the first sermon that I've preached since I've been back from my trip to Israel. I was off on the 4th and the 11th, so this reflects that a little bit. It did change the gospel reading, and you'll hear a reference to that as I begin that scripture reading. I also had a cold, so I apologize for the quality of my voice. Please remain standing for the reading of the gospel. And the gospel lesson has changed. The sermon title has also changed. When you do a bulletin on Sunday and the sermon doesn't get finished till Saturday night, things morph. Um, and so this, this morphed. And the new gospel passage comes from Luke chapter 10, uh, beginning in verse 29. But the lawyer wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back I will repay you whatever more you spend." Which of these three, do you think, was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. many of you saw the movie in the early 80s with Peter O'Toole about the stand taken by Jewish patriots against the Romans at Masada? Anybody? Some of you have seen it. It's an incredible story. It takes place only about 40 years after the death of Jesus in a mountain fortress down at the southern end of the Dead Sea. The fortress itself was built by King Herod, Herod of Kill All the Babies in Bethlehem fame, who apparently was so paranoid about losing his kingdom to a rival that he built this fortress in the Judean hills so that he could run there and be protected if a threat ever arose. The threat he was expecting never came, and Herod never used his fortress in the rock, although it was completely equipped with baths and the great palaces and all that stuff. But when Rome marched on Jerusalem, bent on destruction around A.D. 70. Jewish patriots remembered that the fortress was there, and they fled to it as a stronghold. It was a couple years of trying before Rome could take the mountain. But finally, building a ramp with Jewish slaves so that the Jewish patriots would hesitate to kill them, Rome was on the threshold of victory. And last week, I stood on that mountain inside the ruins of the synagogue up there where 900-plus men, women, and children 
listened to stories of bondage, and decided that death was better than becoming Roman slaves. And so they selected ten men to kill all the rest of them, taking the sword to their own wives, children, brothers, and friends. Then the ten cast lots, and they found the little potsherds with the names, the ten names on them, to determine which of them would kill the other nine, and then the last would take his own life. When the Romans finally breached the walls, they found only the dead. The patriots had decided they would burn all of their assets so that Rome couldn't take any plunder, but they did decide to leave their food and water supplies to show to Rome that they had not been starved out and that their death was their own choice and not an act of desperation. Some claim that the story is mixed with legend, but in one sense, the truth of it doesn't really matter. The story is embedded in the psyche of Israel, and the memory forms the identity of Israelis even today. When the Israeli Defense Forces finish boot camp, they climb the 1,300-foot mountain, and they take their oath amidst the ruins. As they go to the place and they remember the story, they reinforce their identity as proud nationalists who would choose death over slavery. The murder-suicide of over 900 people and hearing some of the moving speeches given in that synagogue to convince men to murder their families rather than see them as slaves took some time for me to process and get my brain around. And so with three others in our group, I elected to walk down the mountain rather than to take the cable car back down so I could have some time to connect with the earth and really think about what I'd heard. And I honestly don't know whether it's helpful to have the story of Masada as part of your national identity. But the trip to Masada, along with the entire journey I took across the Holy Land, reminded me that we are all formed by the stories that we believe. There are each of us stories in our families that tell us who we are. The stories of immigration, of hardship, of family businesses, of the big storm of the, or the Great Depression, or how, remember, when I had to go to school, I had to walk 10 miles through the blinding snow one way to get there. There are stories that we tell as a nation, and those stories sound different depending which group is telling it. I went to seminary with a woman who'd grown up in Georgia, and she told me that she was in college before she learned that the South had actually lost the Civil War. I'm, honestly, she, I, she was in college before she learned that because the stories that she was told, grow, and she's my age, stories she was told growing up in Georgia was sort of, well, everybody got tired of fighting and lots of people died, and so they, everybody just got together and signed a truce at Appomattox so no one would have to die anymore. Native Americans tell different stories about the arrival of Europeans in America than those of us of European descent normally tell. And the stories we tell, whether they're true or not, 
are a way of shaping our lives. They tell us how to define good and bad, proud and shameful. They tell us how to bear up under great difficulty. And it makes a great deal of difference whether the story that taught us to bear up under difficulty was a story that came out of the Wild West, the story out of the life of an African slave, or Grimm's fairy tales. We went to the Holocaust Museum, and the weight of the stories by the time that we finished were so heavy that it was a wonder any one of us could even walk back to the bus. Jesus knew well the power of stories to shape human society and behavior, and so that was his primary means of teaching the people. He told parables, stories that would help people understand what God was like and how God expected us to treat each other. And then, ultimately, his own life became, as some have called it, the greatest story ever told. The story that has been told and retold so often that the cycles of the church are built around it, helping us to remember what happened so that we can have the stories working within us and help us to interpret our lives in its light. That's why Bible stories matter. The stories of Jesus weren't just told to entertain the crowds. They were stories that Jesus felt would help us to shape our lives to look more like heaven and less like hell. The story of the rebellious son who squandered his father's inheritance does everything wrong but still receives a hero's welcome from dad when he decides to come home. And the sub-story of the older brother who deeply resented his father's grace. And the story that I just read of the man who was mugged on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho and how all the pious religious people took great pains to avoid him and to cross the street and go by on the other side, and how the only one who cared enough to help was a mixed-race, semi-pagan Samaritan. Jesus also points back to the stories that helped to shape him. He mentions the story of Jonah, who tried to run from the will of God and spent three days in the belly of a whale three days in a dark, fishy tomb before emerging to a new life. And the central story of the Jewish people, the story of the exodus from Egypt, 40 years wandering in the wilderness before the final entry into the land flowing with milk and honey. Jesus actually blends his story right into that one, taking and breaking the Passover matzah and saying it was his body, that was broken, holding up the Passover cup and saying it was his blood. We've become so sterile with our Bible stories, I think. We spend so much time trying to prove that they did or didn't happen when the power of a truly great story really has nothing to do with that. As we drove down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho last week, our guide pointed to a spot up on the hill where he said, yeah, and that, that's the ruins of the inn up there where the Good Samaritan took the man who'd been hurt on the road. And I remember thinking, it's a parable. <laughs> 
there was no actual good Samaritan who found a man who took him up to an inn. It's a parable. Now, I don't doubt that there would have been an inn along that road. It's a long road. It took us over an hour to drive it. It's incredibly steep going down to the Dead Sea, the lowest place on earth. But don't go telling me that that's where the Good Samaritan went. He didn't really exist. But then I thought in a deeper sense, maybe he did. Maybe he still does. Maybe he still travels that steep road, helping out the Bedouin who make their makeshift huts in the landscape. And maybe he helps them when a goat or a calf gets stuck in a rocky crag. Maybe he lives still because Jesus honors his work with a story that took a moral lesson and managed to make it by story, flesh, and blood. Maybe he's more true than the facts and more alive than those of us just riding by on a bus who doubted his existence. That's the power of story. What are the stories that have shaped you? What stories are shaping your children even now? Bible stories aren't always safe. Stories in the Bible have been used to oppress people, to squash scientific inquiry, to frighten others into submission. It's not exactly safe that we give our third graders Bibles. They read some of those stories, oh my goodness which is why we tell stories in community, here, together. We're shaped and we're formed as we sift through the stories and decide by the light of the Holy Spirit that this story is one that fits us in this way, here and now. And then we lift our story up to God to see if God can make it stick, if God will make it holy, if God will make it ours. This is the season of Lent. And the church tells us that now is the time to be telling wilderness stories, the temptation stories, the stories about how how life gets hard and desperate, and how God turned that hard and desperate dust of the ground into human beings made in God's image formed in the Christian desert stories, would we take our lives on that mountain? I don't know. Soon we'll move to the stories of Holy Week when we're reminded that those who want to crown you king need only a few days to change their mind and want to kill you. It's the week when we remember stories about friends who betray us and mothers who stand by us and how very much we cry when somebody dies. And it's the week when we remember the story that gave happily ever after a new meaning. The stories we tell here, the stories we tell ourselves, the stories we tell our children matter. And I felt that as I descended the heights of Masada, where over 900 people died because of the stories of slavery, but without perhaps other kinds of stories of hope. When the enemy is about to scale the walls of our lives, the stories we know best, for good or for ill, 
will tell us how to respond. But which stories are they going to be? Will you open your minds to the stories of faith? The stories that Jesus heard? The stories that Jesus told? The stories that Jesus lived? Some of them happened and some of them didn't. But like the story of the Good Samaritan, they're all completely true. Amen. Thanks for subscribing to Spirit Walker Sermons. If you're ever in the area, stop in for worship at 9.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 10 Church Street in Westford, Massachusetts. Love to have you stop by my website at www.annrobertson.com, where you can also subscribe to a weekly devotion, which you can receive either as an email or a podcast. I'd love to hear from you via email at ann at annrobertson.com. Thanks again for subscribing, and I hope your week is filled with God's blessings.